Berlin, April 30th, 1945. With the hated Russian troops just blocks away from his Berlin underground bunker, Adolf Hitler was forced to choose death by his own hand rather than face the consequences and the humility of utter defeat. For nearly three quarters of a century, it's been pretty much accepted that Hitler committed suicide inside his bunker in the final days of World War II. But five years ago, a strange little book challenged that consensus. Entitled Hunting Hitler, it argued that while those Russian troops were closing in, the German dictator was secretly flown by helicopter out of his Berlin bunker to Austria where he hopped on a plane to Barcelona and then was whisked by submarine to Argentina, where, thanks to the magic of plastic surgery, he lived out his days in a mountain-like retreat surrounded by adoring fellow Nazis. The wild escape, the book claimed, was only possible due to a conspiracy by high-ranking American intelligence officials, led by Alan Dulles, who later became the director of the CIA. Since I was a kid, I've had this ability to kind of connect the dots and put things together. That's Jerome Corsi, the author of the Hitler Escape to Argentina book. He's the one-time Washington bureau chief for Alex Jones's Infowars and arguably the dean of 21st century American conspiracy theorists. He's at first blush an amiable, pleasant-sounding man with a Ph.D. in political science from Harvard, who's made a successful career out of connecting dots in peculiar ways. So I did very extensive research on that. In fact, I spent a lot of time at the archives and even found the original notes. So I'll stand by that I've raised legitimate issues in that book. I mean, do you believe Hitler did escape to Argentina by submarine? What I say in the book is that the evidence we have today demands further investigation. And in fact, there's fairly credible evidence now that the U.S. government took it seriously and decided at a high official level that it would have been better if Hitler got away rather than having to put him on trial. You'll have to read that book. It's very well documented. We actually did read the book. We found it on Amazon. And it's pretty much what you would expect. A mishmash of wild post-World War II rumors and alleged Hitler sightings that in a few instances found their way into a handful of U.S. government documents before they were thoroughly debunked. More importantly, the book provides insight into Corsi's worldview, one that sees conspiracies and cover-ups everywhere, from a CIA plot to assassinate John F. Kennedy, with the approval of Lyndon Johnson, of course, to a globalist plot to turn North America into one country and replace the dollar with a new currency called the Amero. But Corsi is best known for a far more pernicious crusade, to expose the real birthplace of Barack Obama, as laid out in another one of his books, Where's the Birth Certificate? Even though it was utterly groundless, the claim got maximum currency from its most vocal booster, an avid conspiracy theorist in his own right. And I just say very simply, why doesn't he show his birth certificate? His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya and she was there and witnessed the birth. Okay? I have people that actually have been studying it and they cannot believe what they're finding. It turns out that one of those people Trump was apparently referring to was none other than Jerome Corsi. Did you talk to Donald Trump at that time? Uh, I believe Donald Trump called me maybe four times uh, during 2011. He was looking at the issue, and he wanted to discuss it. 
Trump's promotion of birtherism was part of a cynical political strategy, as one of his advisors at the time, Sam Nunberg, practically boasted during a skullduggery podcast interview in 2018. I dealt in birtherism. I peddled birtherism. I knew Barack Obama was born in the United States. Uh, so wait, wait, wait. Now, wait okay. a second. All right. You peddled birtherism. You knew it was a complete fraud. Um, why did you do it? Donald Trump shot the number one in the polls. You peddled a completely phony conspiracy theory about the president. Now, let me finish. Now, let me finish. Well, yeah. Are you proud of that? Uh, is Donald Trump president? I'm Michael Isikoff, and welcome to Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land, the untold story of Seth Rich, a special six-part podcast brought to you by Skullduggery. In this series, we've explored how one young man's unsolved murder on the streets of Washington, D.C. has been twisted into a web of conspiracy and paranoia. The story provides an illuminating window into how these crazy theories are spawned and manipulated in the swirl of social media, sometimes for cash, sometimes for publicity, and often for brazenly dishonest political purposes, causing anguish and pain to even the most innocent bystanders. This is Episode 6, Collateral Damage. Conspiracy theories, of course, have been part of the American fabric since the earliest days of the Republic. It's a point that author Anna Merlin makes in her new book, Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. The Founding Fathers believed that Native Americans were either controlled by the devil or were controlled by a secret super Native American who was guiding insurrections against them. In the 19th century, the know-nothings were obsessed with the idea of secret papal plots. In the 20th century, the John Birch Society sounded the alarm about communists at the highest levels of the U.S. government. But in the aftermath of the Kennedy assassination, Watergate, and the Church Committee, which revealed, among other things, a CIA mind control program that used LSD on unsuspecting Americans, the idea of government conspiracies run by a deep state got traction on all sides of the American political spectrum. It became abundantly clear what had been going on in specifically the 60s, but the 50s and 60s, and it created... I would argue, like a permanent legacy of distrust that we, we are probably never going to be able to rid ourselves of as a country. Still, with the introduction of social media, the spread of conspiracy theories have shifted into overdrive. We are in one of the strongest periods of conspiracy culture that we've ever seen. And social media and tools like blogging platforms and YouTube made it much easier for people to uh, self-produce conspiracy ideas and to find each other. And they have all these tools to do it, like Twitter, where they can put their ideas into the public square, into the mainstream directly, immediately. People will see them in a way that they wouldn't have, you know, 20 years ago, even. And the story of Seth Rich is a prime case in point. The thing that was really astonishing to me about the Seth Rich story is how many people chose to involve themselves in it from every sort of level of society, from the zealist conspiracy entrepreneurs who nobody knows who they are, just guys shouting into YouTube videos and periscopes, all the way up to, as far as we know, perhaps the White House. A lot of people 
had an investment in talking about and spreading that story, and it worked on every side of the political spectrum. As we explained in our last episode, in May 2017, Fox News was forced to retract its fake story that murdered DNC staffer Seth Rich had slipped internal emails to WikiLeaks. But oddly, that huge embarrassment for the cable news network only encouraged even wilder versions of the same story. Welcome to the Stone Cold Truth. And sure enough, Jerome Corsi was smack in the middle of it, talking it up with his comrade-in-arms, Roger Stone, on Stone's podcast. Let's go through what we know to be facts. Seth Rich indisputably headed the division, the IT division at the DNC, from which documents were purloined and published by WikiLeaks. That is a fact. Quick reminder, everything Stone is saying here is false. Rich didn't head the IT division at the DNC or even work in it. And there's not a shred of evidence he leaked any emails to WikiLeaks. Now back to Stone's podcast. On the line, uh, we have uh, the Washington Bureau Chief for Infowars.com. Dr. Jerry Corsi joins us now. Welcome to the Stone Cold Truth, Dr. Corsi. Uh, very pleased to be back. Thank you. Of course, he used the opportunity to promote an upcoming three-part series on the Seth Rich case he was about to publish on the InfoWars website. Seth Rich was not a hacker. He was a leaker. He got Podesta's emails. No one else had Podesta's emails. And he released them to WikiLeaks. He unveiled a new convoluted theory about who was really behind the hacking of the DNC emails and how they wound up with WikiLeaks. I think I've really figured it out. There's been a CIA hit on the Democratic Party. And they decided they blame it on Russia. They made it look like Russia. I think Russia's entry into this was to um, basically try to... um, Save people like Seth Rich. Corsi and Stone never quite explained Seth Rich's role in this supposed CIA caper, but they pointed the conspiracies around his unsolved murder in a new sinister direction, blaming the Rich family themselves for concealing the truth about their son's death. It seems like there is a, uh, a massive international news blockout. We're being told we can't even discuss this. The uh, official house organ of the Central Intelligence Agency, the Washington Post, ran an op-ed late last week in which the family appeals for privacy. Now, I respect their right to privacy, but in my opinion, the American people's right to truth trumps their right to privacy. Soon enough, Stone and Corsi would get preoccupied, finding themselves in the crosshairs of special counsel Robert Mueller over their stumbling efforts during the 2016 election to find out what was in those WikiLeaks emails. In January 2019, Stone was indicted for lying to Congress, including about his communications with Corsi. Two months later, under the threat of litigation, Corsi apologized and retracted one of his Seth Rich stories, admitting his account was not based on, as he put it, any independent factual knowledge. After the Fox News fiasco, the Internet conspiracy horde focused on another member of the Rich family, Aaron Rich, Seth's older brother, 
an IT specialist for Northrop Grumman in Colorado. We do believe that it's possible that Aaron and Seth worked together and did the leaks together, folks. Matt Couch is a one-time sales manager living in the Arkansas Ozarks who has become a conspiracy entrepreneur, garnering over 200,000 followers on Twitter. Here he is live streaming on Twitter's Periscope, where viewers can post comments in real time. Why are they covering everything up? Why did Aaron Rich try to stop this investigation? And that's what my team's trying to figure out. Why is no one talking about this? Why will no one in the mainstream media touch this? Thank you, Ed. And I'm going to follow Ed here. I've talked to Ed. The Ed that Couch is talking about there and who had just joined the Periscope conversation is, of course, Ed Butowski, the Dallas money man who, you may recall, was the man behind the Fox News debacle. With Couch, Butowski found a new ally to keep his claims of a vast conspiracy alive. Ed and I have had a couple of phone calls where we had a couple of great talks, and Ed just put it out there. Aaron Rich accepted money. Aaron Rich had money from WikiLeaks go into his personal account. Think about that. Aaron Rich had WikiLeaks money go into his personal account, okay? We've been trying to tell you guys this. Get this information out. Just why Couch and Butowski chose to focus on Aaron Rich was never clear. It is true that Aaron had custody of his brother's property including Seth's laptop, which he turned over to D.C. police twice for examination. The cops found nothing on that computer or anything else tying Seth's murder to his job at the DNC. As for the supposed money flow into Aaron's bank account from WikiLeaks, the basis for that was completely mysterious. The bomb is the claim that Aaron Rich was getting money from WikiLeaks. Where is that coming from? There is no factual place where that is coming from. This is a contrived story about Aaron. Washington lawyer Merrill Governsky has filed a defamation lawsuit against Couch and Butowski on behalf of Aaron. So the key lies that they're making about Aaron is that he worked with Seth to download these materials from the DNC, that Aaron personally received money from WikiLeaks in exchange for this data from the DNC, that Aaron is covering up both his role in downloading this DNC data and in the murder of his brother. And and those are all false. No truth to, to any of those statements. And yet the lies were amplified by Periscope's interactive forum, in which Couch's fans chimed in with their own comments. At this point, it is off to the races from here. I mean, you have people in the comments to the Periscope saying, as a fact, Aaron Rich got paid. Parents and Aaron are the keys. Aaron is a snake. How does Aaron sleep at night? And then another follower of Matt Couch says, waterboard him and find out what he knows. So you see the power of spreading these lies about Aaron that are then retweeted and claimed as facts. The two brothers had been close. Seth had been the best man at Aaron's wedding the year before he was killed. But even that special occasion was twisted by Couch. Matt will use these pictures from what was a very special and happy day in Aaron's life and tweet statements like, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. You can imagine, if it's your wedding picture, being used to spread lies about you and how it robs Aaron of this very special 
moment in his life because this special picture is now perverted with these lies. Aaron was so horrified about what was being said about him and his family, he tried to reason with Couch, sending him a certified letter pleading with him to stop. So we just picked up the letter from Aaron Rich. So far, um, we're still breathing. So there's no, uh, no resin or anthrax or anything on it. Couch's response was contemptuous. Here he is, driving around with one of his confederates named Josh and periscoping while they did so. Josh, should I read it? Go ahead and read it, Josh says. So it says, Dear Mr. Couch, I do not know you and do not know, and you do not know me or my parents. Unfortunately, you never had the chance to meet my brother, Seth. If you had, I know you wouldn't be spreading lies about me, my parents, and my brother on all of your various social media accounts. For the past few months, you and your America First Media platform have spread false conspiracy theories about the murder of my brother on Twitter and Periscope, including ridiculous and offensive statements about ways that you say I am involved. Couch interrupts with a little sidekick banter for the Periscope show. Josh, have we ever said Aaron Rich killed his brother? No. No. No, I don't believe we ever said Aaron Rich killed his brother, no. Now, did we say he was involved in helping cover things up? Yeah. Uh Yeah, we we did. Because, Aaron, you won't release the phone records. Aaron, you won't release the laptops. You won't release the phone. Um, You won't cooperate with investigators. So, yeah, we have said that you covered things up, but we never once said that you killed your brother. Just to be completely clear, Aaron had cooperated with the D.C. police, but he was not about to turn his brother's personal records over to an Internet troll like Matt Couch. In this age of Internet conspiracy theories, an individual like Matt Couch can invent a story and then demand that a private citizen turn over proof to him to prove his innocence. He essentially is asking Aaron to give him his bank records in order to disprove a concocted narrative. After Couch finished reading the letter from Aaron and making demands that he turn over bank and phone records... If for some reason Josh and I don't wake up in the morning, you'll know there was something on the letter. (laughs) He then appealed to his followers to send him money. We are 100% crowdfunded. We need your help. This is what we do. So wait a second, they are fundraising off the letter? They are asking people to, to share the link, to get out the message, to spread their own notoriety and sending out a link to their Fundly profile. And offering T-shirts. Right. They offer America First Media T-shirts, and they've collected at least tens of thousands of dollars um, to fund these you know, so-called investigations into a fake contrived narrative that they've created. It's infuriating. It's, it's devastating. It's, I mean, there's so many emotions going through of, you know, why, why do you feel the need to do this? Aaron Rich is a private person who has rarely spoken publicly, but he agreed to talk to us about what it was like to have Matt Couch taunting him and trying to raise money off his brother's murder. The, the, different, the different feelings that go through watching someone profit off of lies about you and your family, it, it is indescribable. I mean, it's, it's, you know, want to punch a wall. It's just, it's everything. Uh, you know, and then the lies are so gross that they're threatening your livelihood. 
Prosecutor Deborah Sines had the unenviable task of questioning Aaron about Couch's allegations, as she had to do with all the conspiracy claims, no matter how absurd, just to make sure there was nothing to any of them. You try asking a decedent's brother, did you kill your brother? Did you have anything to do with his murder? Are you the one that set this up? It's horrible. It's awful. I never would expect to go and be having to testify in a grand jury about my alleged involvement um, into my brother's death. Never would have expected that. Yeah, just completely unimaginable that that's where things got to. So you had to go in there to the grand jury and she has to ask you question by question about what Matt Couch had been saying? Correct. Every every accusation um, that had been made about me was questioned. I left that and just broke down of sitting there realizing, am I really having to sit here and do this because people can just tell lies um, and I have to keep suffering the consequences right. of those lies. How has all this affected your life? Completely upended it. You would figure that the day your brother is killed is the worst day of your life. And it turned out it can actually go downhill from there. I want to have a normal day again where I don't have to be worrying about all this. Um, And who knows when that will be, if that will ever be again. Pretty much everyone who loses a loved one in a mass shooting that gets a significant amount of media attention is at some point told that their family member was a crisis actor who didn't really die. Author Anna Merlin says that with the rise of social media, attacking the families of victims is a vicious new turn. Unfortunately, in this country, we have a pretty tidy little conspiracy cottage industry that is devoted really to hounding people who have lost loved ones in violent ways. And Aaron and Joel and Mary Rich were a very unique example of that. It's not just the families. Joe Capone was the manager of Lou's City Bar, Seth's favorite hangout, and they got to be friends. Capone found himself a target of suspicion by the conspiracy theorists because of random events, like a family sightseeing trip. I went on a tour of the White House with my children three days before he was shot. So, of course, there's something going on. What were you doing at the White House? My daughter had a friend coming in from Canada, and she had never been in the... We wanted to do something fun with her. It was the public tour. It was the public tour. You get to see the blue room, the green room. And so your name shows up on the White House visitor logs. Yes. And somebody sees this. Yes. Who saw it, and what did they do with that information? Uh, there's a lot of, there's one guy, I'm totally blanking on his name, Matt Couch. Yep, we know him. That's, uh, you know, he assumes a bunch of things. There's a whole list. He has my name up here on uh, Twitter, all over the place. Uh, he put pictures of my family on Twitter. How would you like me to put your kids on the internet when they're not involved with anything? What was Matt Couch saying was the significance of the fact that you had been to the White House on July 6th. That that there were secret meetings going on. Secret meetings with who? Hillary, you know. 
you were conspiring with Hillary Clinton or I must have been right aides to Hillary Clinton. Yes, I've never met Hillary. I've never seen any of these people. It's tough. My my kids don't need to hear this stuff. My family doesn't need to hear this stuff. Of stuff that I, I'm getting blamed for that 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 I haven't done anything. Seth was my friend. Mark Mueller wasn't a friend of Seth's, but he too got sucked into the conspiracy. As you might remember from episode one, he was the first neighbor on the scene of the killing. After he gave interviews to local TV stations, the internet sleuths jumped on what he said. I was at work one day and I got a call from an ex saying, watch out, there's people after you, and sent me some screenshots from Twitter and Facebook and whatever. And suddenly I realized I had all these people putting stuff out on the internet about me, fake stuff. Soon enough, Mueller was being linked to Jeffrey Dahmer, the notorious Milwaukee serial killer. (sighs) How did they draw that connection? What was... Who knows? I'm from Wisconsin near Milwaukee, where Jeffrey Dahmer's from. They would take pictures of Jeffrey Dahmer and Dexter... And they would superimpose my face on theirs. When they published the phone numbers and the addresses of all my brothers and sisters and me and my neighbors, that's pretty vicious. They were coming at in various ways over and over and over again and contacting me through every one of my email accounts and calling me at work and calling me at home on my cell phone. It's pretty intense. How freaked out were you? Well, freaked out enough that I stayed away from the house every weekend, drank a little bit. I had Airbnb in the basement, so then suddenly I had to start turning people away that might be, you know, alt-right trying to get into my home. Because of these trolls? Like Matt Couch. Couch did not respond to multiple requests to be interviewed for this podcast. On July 9th, 2019, after nearly two years of tweets and periscopes, Couch wrote a letter to the federal judge overseeing the defamation lawsuit brought by Aaron Rich. He said he was removing all content relating to Aaron from his website and was, quote, even willing to issue an apology to Mr. Rich. He made no reference to those like Mueller and Capone, who he had also claimed were part of a supposed Seth Rich cover-up. And Couch made clear that Seth himself was still fair game, later telling a YouTube host who goes by the name SpaceShot76 that he had big plans in the works. We're going to do a Seth Rich video series. Nice. And it'll kind of go piece by piece by piece with the investigations there. Uh, that probably, somebody's probably choking some tums down in D.C. right now. We are in talks and we are really close to uh, having a book deal finalized as well. I'm going to write a book on the Seth Rich investigation as well. I'd love to have it out by uh, Christmas if we can. There's a bit of a push, but we're going to see what happens. Have me out for Christmas. Well, you got a sale right here for sure, because I'd definitely uh, be uh, ingesting that 100%. Turn to our final case for today, which is Rich versus Fox News. Okay, ready to go? Ready to go. Go right ahead. How far can conspiracy theorists go in tormenting innocent bystanders like Joe Capone and families like the Riches without facing any consequences? What constitutes outrageous conduct for which the perpetrators can be held accountable? Those issues were squarely on the table in a New York courtroom on February 4th, 2019. 
You may remember a federal judge had rejected a lawsuit filed by the Riches against Fox News and Ed Butowski over the cable news network's bogus story that their son had stolen internal emails from the DNC and leaked them to WikiLeaks. But the Riches weren't giving up. They took their case to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Their lawyer, Aaron Subramanian, laid out their argument. The defendants in this case targeted and victimized two grieving parents shortly after their son had been murdered, turned them into pawns in a political game, and enlisted them in pushing a false story about their dead son. The lawsuit raised complicated issues. The Riches contend they had suffered pain, anguish, and emotional distress as a result of Fox News' reckless falsehoods. Usually the courts are reluctant to entertain such arguments for fear of infringing on First Amendment freedoms. But in this case, the arguments got bogged down on the question of who exactly had been defamed, Seth, who was deceased, or Joel and Mary. One of the judges, Guido Calabrese, zeroed in on the crux of the legal issue. You have to convince us that this was outrageous with respect to the parents, not outrageous with respect to the son who was killed, which would support a defamation were he still alive. A key part of the Rich's argument was that Potowski had tricked them into hiring a private investigator, Rod Wheeler, who then falsely confirmed the bogus Fox story, a story that, without any evidence, portrayed their son as a thief and a leaker. Indeed, in this case, we're not saying that Fox somehow became aware of this after the fact. We're saying that Fox knew of this entire scheme from the get-go. last case was... Fox News, in its brief, had asserted that the cable news network had been engaged in First Amendment-protected journalism, even if its story had been retracted. But when it came time for Fox lawyer Joe Terry to make his case, he ran into some tough questioning from Judge Calabrese. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, May it please the Court, Joe Terry for Fox News. The claims asserted by the riches are unprecedented in two respects. First, the riches seek to recover damages for the emotional injury that they suffered as a result of the defamation of their son. No case cited by either party or which we are aware has ever allowed the family of a deceased to recover for injuries that they suffered arising from the defamation of a relative. That is true whether the claims are- Now wait a sec. Let's, (laughs) Let's just separate a few things. First, Let's assume that the son is in a coma but is still alive and a defamation suit is brought. Are the allegations here sufficient so that they would go forward in the face of your First Amendment arguments? In a defamation suit, all of these things here, would they be enough so that they would go forward. Because I would suggest that they do, and if that is so, then all the First Amendment stuff in your brief is a waste of time. There are lots of cases where people allege that they were deceived by reporters, sometimes in ways that we would all think is relatively unpleasant, like lying to rape victims. The courts have uniformly found that that conduct is not sufficient to give rise to such a claim. And I think that when you layer on the fact that there are significant First Amendment concerns 
raised by this. There are sufficient reasons to uphold the district court's decision. I may say so very well argued by both sides. The appeals court is yet to rule on this case, but how it does could have large implications for America's booming conspiracy industry. It's an industry, we should note, that is of increasing concern to the FBI. In a May 30, 2019 intelligence bulletin obtained by Yahoo News contributor Jana Winter, the Bureau for the first time labeled fringe political conspiracy theories a domestic law enforcement threat. The bulletin pointed to growing evidence that the wild and baseless claims on social media are motivating extremists to take violent action, citing examples that range from Pizzagate to the harassment of the Sandy Hook families to the arrest of two men who were plotting an attack on a research facility in Alaska that they believed, from watching online videos, the U.S. government was using to control the weather and prevent humans from talking to God. Back to Seth's unsolved murder. Few have had a tougher time dealing with the real-world implications of the conspiracies around this case than the Washington Police Department, which after three years has gotten nowhere trying to solve the crime. Can I help you? Yeah, Kristen in um, communications is expecting us. Do you have a phone number? Uh, yes. And can I see everybody's ID, please? We went down to police headquarters to talk to the top cop in charge of the case. So my name is Leslie Parsons. I'm the commander of the Criminal Investigations Division for the Metropolitan Police Department in Washington, D.C. As Parsons told us, the wild conspiracy theories about Seth Rich's death have been a major problem for investigators. It's uh, disheartening to all the detectives that are working on any case when information is put out that's false or misleading to the public. It also causes the detectives to go down an angle and investigate something that comes in that clearly isn't true. It's a conspiracy theory, but it takes police resources. The D.C. police have examined and re-examined Seth's laptop. They've poured over his bank records. They've interviewed scores of former colleagues and friends. Their firm conclusion? We have no evidence at all that leads to this being something related to his employment or any sort of conspiracy theory whatsoever. No indication he was in communication with WikiLeaks. No indication he was getting paid from some outside source. No indication that he was in communication with anybody who had any political motive. So uh, fair to assume you've examined all those angles and have found zero zilch that would support it. Correct. There is nothing to suggest this is part of any conspiracy theory out there. It's been the statement of the Metropolitan Police Department since the beginning that this was an attempted robbery gone bad. There's nothing else to suggest it's anything other than that. You may remember the rash of robberies in the Bloomingdale neighborhood during the summer of 2016 that police believe were related to Seth's death. The police has made little progress in solving them, and in the few cases where they did make arrests, they got no information about who might have been behind the murder. Do you have any suspects? There's nothing at this time that I would want to divulge to the public. But if you had a, a, if you had a suspect, you could put out a, a, an artist's sketch. Yeah. Any right? time, yeah, if, if we had information where we needed the assistance from the public, it would definitely be out there. Well, I would suggest you really don't have anybody. 
I, I think that's where we ended up. There's an important point here for context, and it's a shocking one. About half of the homicides in the country are never solved at all. No arrests, no trials, no justice. Since we did that interview with Commander Parsons, Joel Rich told us that a new detective had been assigned to his son's murder, a detective from the Major Case slash Cold Case Squad. The idea is to bring a fresh set of eyes to what had become a stale investigation. The lack of progress has been frustrating for the riches, of course, but also to Deborah Sines, the prosecutor who was in charge of the case, but who retired in 2018, unable to crack it. Anytime you can't close a murder case, it sits right on your shoulders. It still does, and I don't even work there anymore. Um, I wanted to give this to his parents and his brother, but I couldn't. Solving murders in the nation's capital is hard enough, Sines says. In Washington, D.C., being a witness to a murder can mean a death sentence. I've lost witnesses that were murdered because they were witnesses, because they told me what happened. There's a very strong anti-snitch culture in Washington, D.C., much stronger than it is in some other areas in the country. Add assassination language, Russians, add all those buzzwords. Who wants to be a witness in a case like that? The wild conspiracy theories have complicated the job of police and prosecutors. The stories have penetrated to the streets, poisoning the well of potential witnesses and intimidating many others from coming forward. But Signs hasn't given up hope. I know that someone is going to talk. I know, I know that. It's a lot easier after a couple of years go by for people to talk about this because they think they got away with it. I am convinced that theft murderers, and, I, and I, I use the term plural on purpose. I'll say there is one gunman, but there's also an aider and a better. I'm convinced one or both of them will eventually be brought to justice. Over the course of the six episodes in this podcast, we've traced the story of Seth Rich, an earnest, idealistic kid from Nebraska who early one summer morning in 2016 was murdered just a block and a half from his home in Washington, D.C. That was tragic enough. But his death was cynically hijacked by a rogues gallery, Julian Assange, Vladimir Putin's trolls, and allies of President Trump like Sean Hannity and Roger Stone, all of whom promoted baseless, false, and dangerous versions of events seemingly without any consequences. There was, of course, a political purpose to all the Seth Rich conspiracy mongering, to protect Trump and deflect attention from the Russian attack on the 2016 presidential election. Indeed, there is strong evidence that the initial version of the conspiracy theory was spawned by Russia's intelligence service, a classic case of Kremlin disinformation. In April of 2019, special counsel Robert Mueller definitively stated in his final report that the claims that Seth leaked DNC emails to WikiLeaks were false. 
You might think that would put a stake through the heart of these conspiracy theories. But don't count on it. Those who believe in them will never accept anything Robert Mueller or the FBI or the Washington police or anybody else in the U.S. government says. That's why this story is about much more than Seth Rich. It's emblematic of the media and political culture we live in, illustrating how falsehoods can spread from the far reaches of the dark web to Twitter and Facebook, and then to a major cable news outlet, polluting the national dialogue and turning innocent bystanders and grieving family members into collateral damage. Real-life victims of the conspiracy land our country has become. I'm Michael Isikoff. Thanks for listening. We need to give a couple of shout-outs here. First, to my Yahoo News colleague Alexander Nazarian, who thought investigating the conspiracies around Seth Rich's murder would be a good idea for a podcast. Thanks also to my Yahoo News colleagues Charity Elder, Dan Clydman, and Mark Seaman for their helpful ideas, as well as to the folks from Long Story Short Media for their invaluable help in producing this podcast. Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land is brought to you by Skullduggery, a weekly podcast that I host with Yahoo News Editor-in-Chief Dan Clydman. In each episode, we dissect the latest revelations and controversies surrounding the Trump administration, and we interview key newsmakers, including some of the president's fiercest critics, as well as his most stalwart defenders. If you are enjoying this series, subscribe to Skullduggery and Yahoo News' Conspiracy Land on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a review.